Thank you all. I um, thought about, you know, famous partnerships and uh, whether it's artistic or scientific. And there are so many, you think of Verdi and Boito or Richard Strauss and Hugo von Hofmannsthal or uh, Wagner and Wagner. <laughs> but, but they all had uh, success outside of the partnership. And the extraordinary thing about Gilbert and Sullivan is that uh, although both of them were very prolific, neither one has much that we know of their output today outside of this extraordinary partnership. Uh, okay, so Arthur Sullivan wrote Onward Christian Soldiers, and we all know that. But mostly, you know, <laughs> he did, he did. <laughs> you didn't know that. <laughs> Well, Arthur Sullivan wanted to be a, a famous serious composer, and Gilbert wanted to be a famous serious dramatist, and life just doesn't always work out the way you want it to. <laughs> so instead, they became the most famous pair ever of comic musician and dramatist. But I'll begin at the beginning. So we're in Victorian England, and actually, Queen Victoria's reign of 1837 to 1901 was longer on both ends than uh, Arthur Sullivan's life. So uh, he was very definitely a, a Victorian man, a Victorian composer. Uh, Gilbert, the older man, Arthur, uh, Arthur Sullivan uh, was born in 1842 and Gilbert was born in 1836. Uh, Gilbert started life wanting uh, to be an artillery gunman. And uh, he enlisted, no, this is real. <laughs> Even their lives are funny, right? Uh, he, he enlisted, and six weeks before he was to begin, the Crimean War ended, and uh, suddenly Britain didn't need him or anybody else, so he decided he would leave the profession of being an artillery gunman and uh, study to be a lawyer. And he was, in fact, a very smart fellow and got through law school easily, but he found that he was nervous speaking in front of people. So law was not good. He then illustrated and wrote pieces for a British magazine called Fun. And he wrote a series of little satirical pieces called the Bab Ballads. Now, these Bab Ballads dealt with British social issues, uh, law, and most of all, the class system. The class system exists in England now, but it existed much more strongly in the 1800s. And so uh, Gilbert loved to poke fun at this. He had a way of poking fun at things, at social institutions, that was both um, inoffensive and in fact mildly flattering to the institutions. So uh, nobody found him objectionable, even though he loved to skewer every, everything in sight. Sullivan, who uh, was a more precocious young man, uh, had a whole different upbringing. He was focused on music from the very beginning. When he was eight years old, he'd written a piece, and uh, when he was just a young boy, he decided he wanted to get into one of the most prominent London uh, choir schools, and he succeeded in doing this against his father's wishes. His father was a musician and just thought it was a bad idea. So uh, Thomas Sullivan, Arthur Sullivan's father, was a clarinetist and a bandmaster. 
However, uh, young Sullivan was really quite a, a genius, and uh, he had a piece published when he was 13 years old. He got this Mendelssohn scholarship uh, to go travel to Leipzig, and uh, by the time he was a teenager, he was clearly quite a, a prodigy, and uh, Britain expected him to become uh, the next English Bach. And instead, he became the next English Offenbach, I guess. <laughs> so he, he, was, he was constantly torn uh, because he wanted to write serious church music and cantatas and, and music that was uh, worthy of Queen Victoria. But this turned out differently. Now, Sullivan and Gilbert uh, met around 1869 and uh, it was just casual. But in 1871, they actually wrote a piece together in great haste, a piece called Thespis, or The Gods Grown Old. It was set on Mount Olympus, and a troupe of actors somehow runs into the aging gods, and a silly plot ensues. This was a, a Boxing Day uh, pantomime sort of piece. Now, let's just revisit the English music scene before Gilbert and Sullivan. There was the high and the serious, the music that was appropriate for church and for worship, and then there were the music halls where everything was very vulgar and coarse, and uh, it, it was the scene of lots of drunken revelry and you know audiences having a great time watching actors uh, do what Gilbert later called the pork pie school of humor, where uh, you know you were always falling on the ground and mugging to the audience and doing asides to the audience. So along come Gilbert and Sullivan, and even in this thespis, they conceived a different kind of piece, where the music would be quite well crafted and the the dialogue would be very intelligent, and yet the piece would be a comedy, maybe even a farce. The actors had never encountered this. It was a new form of drama, and there was no time to rehearse it. So it was not really surprising that Thespis was not a great success. Uh, the whole form that was being created was foreign to the actors that played it. I did a little research, and they say most of the score of Thespis is lost even though people still know what the story was, but others suggest that maybe some of the pieces of Thespis just made it into the later collaborative operettas between Gilbert and Sullivan. So we'll never know. But I do know one piece from Thespis in reference to climbing over Mount Olympus goes like this. Climbing over a rocky mountain, skipping rivulet and fountain, passing where the willows quiver, passing where the willows quiver by the ever-rolling river, swollen with the summer rain, the summer rain. So you probably recognize this was recycled 15 years later, not quite, 10 years later, into the Pirates of Penzance. So uh, Gilbert and Sullivan parted ways again, and after three more years, they had um, a surprise opportunity. There was an evening of two one-act pieces, 40-minute pieces, and they were asked to uh, write a third. Now, the person who engineered this, bringing them together, is named Richard Doily Cart. 
And that's a name you recognize in connection with them. He somehow saw that putting the chemistry of these two fellows together would result in something extraordinary. Now, Gilbert had been writing plays, both comic and serious, but many of them serious. And this little one-act piece that they collaborated on is called Trial by Jury. Trial by Jury is about a young woman who is suing a young man for breach of promise. They haven't married yet, but he promised he would. And he's not coming through. <laughs> so in this piece, the very learned judge says, uh, we do not want anybody to be prejudiced. In this case, you must be completely impartial. That woman is so beautiful. That man is such a cad. Now, don't, <laughs> don't let that influence your opinion in any way. So in the end, the judge decides in his wisdom that the best legal course of action is for him to marry the, defend the, the plaintiff himself. So <laughs> he, he solves the case. And um, this was hugely popular. It ran for hundreds of performances. And needless to say, Richard Doyley Cart felt vindicated and asked Gilbert and Sullivan if they would, in fact, come together to write a full-length piece, which they did. It was called The Sorcerer. Now, The Sorcerer, which was written around 1877, is about a sorcerer who puts a spell on a village so that everybody falls in love with the first person they see. <clears throat> However, in a class society, Victorian England, this turns out disastrously. And uh, in, in order to break the spell, he has to sacrifice his own life. So even though this is a comedy, it has to end this way. Uh, John Wellington Wells, this sorcerer, purveyor of magic and spells. And uh, this magic element was something that Gilbert loved. Now, he took a lot of the stories for these opera plots that he had to put together from his Bab ballads. Sullivan did not care for supernatural in stories. He said, how can I write about real human emotions when magically uh, someone looks at someone and falls in love right away? Uh, Gilbert reminded him that he was very fond of Wagner and that, in fact, that's exactly what happens in Tristan and Isolde. But uh, Sullivan was constantly pushing Gilbert to write things that were more high-minded and serious. So the next piece that they wrote together was the first piece that was truly a global smash, and that was HMS Pinafore. HMS Pinafore is, again, a class struggle story. Captain Corcoran has a daughter named Josephine, and the beautiful Josephine is in love with a lowly sailor. Uh, Rafe Rackstraw. So this seems like a situation that cannot be resolved until in a very typical uh, Gilbert twist at the end of the story it's revealed that in fact uh, Josephine's father and Rafe Rackstraw were switched at birth by one of the <laughs> one of the endlessly careless nursemaids in the Gilbert and Sullivan <laughs> canon, you know. <laughs> And because, in fact, uh, this makes Rafe of a higher social class, he's free to marry the beautiful Josephine, and he himself is uh, free to marry Mrs. Cripps, better known to all of us as Little Buttercup. So uh, I'm called Little Buttercup, right? We can all... <laughs> 
so um, Gilbert always wants to point out that yes, in our British society, uh, there are some class rules which perhaps are hypocritical, but uh, he, he teases the society he lives in with such grace that uh, everybody accepts uh, what he does and, and in fact feels rather flattered by it. it. It won't surprise you to know that Queen Victoria herself uh, loved Gilbert and Sullivan and that both of the prime ministers who served uh, alternately Disraeli and Gladstone several times during their uh, period of creativity both enjoyed uh, the works of Gilbert and Sullivan, even though Gilbert and Sullivan actually made more money than the prime ministers. <laughs> <laughs> so this franchise became more and more successful, so successful that in the United States, hundreds of companies had uh, pirate versions of HMS Pinafore. Now, because they had no uh, intellectual property laws at this time, everybody was free to do whatever they wanted, and, and they did. So, uh, you know, there was the, the transvestite HMS pinafore, there was everything. Uh, and and uh, Gilbert and Sullivan decided that what they would do would be come to America with their next piece, The Pirates of Penzance, and um, they would be able to put on the real doily cart version of HMS pinafore. And uh, although property rights, publication rights, still did not exist as we know them today. They were able to establish what the real pinafore was and introduce the Pirates of Penzance, their next collaboration. Unfortunately, Sullivan, rather absentmindedly, had left all the music to Act One back in England. <laughs> but luckily, he was the kind of mind that could just sit down and write it all out again. So he recreated all the parts to the Pirates of Penzance, and within a week, uh, New York City enjoyed both the premiere of the real HMS Pinafore and the new Pirates of Penzance. Uh, this was the beginning of the international success of this team. The aesthetic that I was telling you about didn't change. It only got stronger. The um, situations in which the characters are placed are absolutely absurd. And yet, every character plays their part as though what's happening is the most natural thing in the world. So uh, it really was the first kind of comic theater that put up a fourth wall and allowed these characters to interact in the absurd situations they find themselves without the actors turning and winking to the audience. Now, this was not easy for Gilbert and Sullivan to accomplish. Sullivan apparently was the first dictatorial stage director. He would stand by the actor, the actor would deliver the line, and Sullivan, uh, excuse me, Gilbert would repeat the line, not only the inflections, but the motions exactly as he intended them. And the actor, assuming that that was just sort of a model, would take off on his own, and uh, Gilbert would go over it 50 times, 100 times, no, exactly like this, exactly like this. <laughs> The actors reported that it was both the most inspiring and the most infuriating and exasperating kind of stage direction they had ever received. However, the end result was that these productions would run 400, 600 performances to an absolutely captivated audience. 
because they were put together so well and nothing was left to chance. Sullivan would do the same with the music. Often, a singer felt that uh, the music was sort of a rough sketch of what they were supposed to do. And, uh, you know, there were certainly precedents for that. But in Sullivan's mind, his music down to the exact note was uh, what he wanted, and that's what he demanded. Apparently, one singer in HMS Pinafore said, uh, I'm, I'm being so constricted, I feel like I'm a chorus girl. And he said, no, no, your voice isn't good enough to be a chorus girl. <laughs> <laughs> the chorus in all of these Gilbert and Sullivan operettas has been elevated to a full character. As soon as the pieces begin, you know immediately uh, everything about the milieu in which the story is taking place. You know, in, in uh, HMS Pinafore, the sailors come out and they sing, we sail the ocean blue and our saucy ships of beauty. We are sober men and true. And, and it's never a principal character who begins the action. The chorus comes at the beginning, remains throughout, and, and of course at the end has the last word. Now, in the Pirates of Penzance, they develop much more characterization than in the previous pieces. Uh, Sullivan, who was very close to his mother all of his life, said to her, uh, in the Pirates of Penzance, Gilbert has outdone himself, and you will be proud to know that I have written music of a whole different level. It's so full of character, beautiful melody, and captures the essence of every scene. Once again, in the Pirates of Penzance, the piece begins with pirates setting a mood. Uh, they're singing, pour, oh, pour the pirate sherry. Now, pirates usually don't drink sherry, but <laughs> these pirates are noble pirates. <laughs> So, of course, they are drinking sherry. In, in all of these pieces, uh, there was a cast who became the standard actors and singers in, in the uh, stories. And, and there's always the, the young tenor who's in love with the young soprano. And then there is the baritone who is, say, uh, Joseph Porter, Admiral Joseph Porter in HMS Pinafore, or uh, Coco in the Mikado, the Lord High Executioner, or Major General Stanley in the Pirates of Penzance. And, and to these characters are entrusted much of the humor of each of the pieces. The, the young love interest is there because it has to be. Right? We, have to have, we have to have a love interest that is foiled and then ultimately they can come together. And then there is always the heavy contralto, uh, the, the woman who has passed her prime many years ago. And um, in, in the non-PC world of, of Gilbert and Sullivan is always a butt of all the jokes. You know, uh, Frederick says to Ruth in the Pirates of Penzance, uh, are you beautiful? And she says, you will find me the, a wife of a thousand. And she sa he says, no, but I'll find you a wife of 47. And that's quite enough. So. You know, 47 was 87 then. So if the uh, people who Gilbert and Sullivan skewered didn't mind, um, it was because they rode very carefully on the tides of what 
interested the public at the time. After the uh, Pirates of Penzance, they wrote an opera uh, called Patience. Now, Patience uh, satirizes the aesthetic movement in England. Oscar Wilde and Rossetti and Swinburne. Uh, none of these gentlemen felt the slightest bit offended. In fact, uh, Oscar Wilde was asked to give sort of pre-performance talks <laughs> in his green velvet garb and, uh, you know, holding a lily. And um, this, was, this was even more appealing to everybody because it looked uh, that, that the British uh, public could laugh at themselves. And that is, of course, what the, the operettas of Gilbert and Sullivan do. They, they um, celebrate all that is British, all the propriety and the morals and the, the class differences, and they both poke fun at them and celebrate them. Now, in this patience, um, it turns out that there is a war between two esthetes. Uh, one is uh, fleshly and one is platonic. And, uh, the reason that this story evolved in this way is that originally Gilbert and Sullivan wanted to create it as a war between two curates, but they decided that it might incite some bad feeling in the religious community if they had two clergymen going at one another's throats. So instead, uh, they create this story of two aesthetic camps and um, Bunthorn, the, the fleshly poet, advocates love that is so, so deep that one could even love a vegetable. <laughs> that, at the end of the story, is exactly what he is condemned to do, if you can imagine such a thing. The other area besides the law that Gilbert and Sullivan loved to poke fun at uh, was the House of Peers, the government. And so in the opera Iolanthe, uh, Iolanthe is a fairy, a spirit, and uh, she is condemned to live on earth because uh, she, has, she has loved a mortal. And so um, it's a romance between fairies and members of the House of Peers. Iolanthe okay. <laughs> has the, the wonderful role of the Lord Chancellor. Uh, you, you've probably heard his, his nightmare song. When you're lying awake with a dismal headache and repose is tabooed by anxiety, I conceive you may use any language you choose to indulge in without impropriety. For your bed is on fire, the bedclothes conspire of usual slumber to plunder you. First your counterpane goes and uncovers your toes and then slips the sheet right out from under you. Now, this kind of song, this so-called patter song, was a trademark of Gilbert and Sullivan. The operas of Rossini have patter songs, even the operas of Mozart have patter songs, but Gilbert and Sullivan elevated it to a whole level, not just with the music, but with the text, uh, so that people would sing these songs and they became uh, well-known and sung throughout England, and uh, probably still are sung throughout England. When Iolanthe uh, premiered, Doily Cart decided he would open a whole new theater with electric light for the first time. It was a 1,300-seat theater between the Strand and the Embankment, just on the north side of the River Thames. So this theater became dedicated to the works of Gilbert and Sullivan, the Savoy Theater.
theater. And uh, I'm sure you've heard Savoy in connection with Gilbert and Sullivan, the Savoy Yards and the Savoy Operas. So uh, this, this theater hosted seven or 8,000 performances of these works uh, over the period from um, like 1880 to 1893. And um, the income was prodigious so that the three of them formed a partnership where each uh, production would be split three ways, but all the costs, um, improving the theater, for example, would also be split three ways. Now, Sullivan was a very easygoing fellow who really had no uh, desire to enter into conflict with anybody. Uh, Gilbert, on the other hand, although everyone who knew him well said that he was as kind as a person could be, uh, was very combative and often uh, quarreled with Doily Cart about how money should and should not be spent. Uh, later on in the partnership, this caused a lot of trouble because, uh, needless to say, there were large sums of money um, being moved quickly. And uh, if, for example, uh, a new chandelier or a new carpet was to come into the theater, was that part of the theater's expense or should Gilbert and Sullivan help pay for that? Well, for the time being, things were running smoothly in spite of the quarrels about money. But uh, Sullivan was knighted. And the knighting of Arthur Sullivan uh, really was the beginning of the downfall of the partnership because as the British press was quick to point out, what Arthur Sullivan may do, Sir Arthur Sullivan should not do. And that meant that Sullivan once again was torn between writing these marvelous, lighthearted, uh, terrific tunes and becoming a serious, internationally recognized composer like Bach or Brahms. Sullivan had taken a trip to Germany. He'd met Liszt, he'd met uh, Grieg, he had discovered along with his friend George Grove, and I, I'm pretty sure that Charles Dickens, who was a close friend of his, was on this trip also. They discovered the manuscript of Lost Symphonies by Franz Schubert, and he heard Die Meisterzinger. And he went back to England and he said, Die Meisterzinger is the greatest comedy ever written. Now, let's be honest, Die Meisterzinger is not the greatest comedy ever written. It might have some of the greatest music ever written for a comedy, but Arthur Sullivan was determined that his music in these operettas would rise to the level of Wagner. Therefore, he began to make demands on Gilbert. No more supernatural elements in our stories. <clears throat> Maybe we should write a tragedy. Gilbert declined. And so Gilbert created a piece called The Mikado. Now, The Mikado is set in Japan, ostensibly, but it is the most British Japan you can imagine. <laughs> and the entire comedy depends on us accepting that uh, all of the Japanese people who inhabit this fantasy Japan have impeccable British morals. <laughs> so this was, in fact, the greatest success 
uh, financially of all of the Gilbert and Sullivan pieces. And it remains the most produced around the world uh, compared, compared with all the others. It is done the most frequently. Uh, then there was a piece called Ruddigore. Ruddigore about a line of ghosts who haunt the current uh, baron, Murgatroyd. And uh, the curse is that if the living Murgatroyd does not commit a crime every day, then he will suffer a horrible, anguishing death. So um, needless to say, this doesn't work out in the way that you might suppose. It uh, works out very happily, in fact. But things were not working out so happily for, for Gilbert and Sullivan now. Um, Doily Cart had decided, in addition to the theater, that he would build a hotel. Some of you have probably stayed there, the Savoy Hotel on the Strand. The Savoy Hotel was the most expensive hotel that had ever been built. It was the first hotel in the world to have a bathtub in every room. And uh, Gilbert was absolutely incensed. He said, who's going to be living there, amphibians? <laughs> so all this money was going down the tubes. And Gilbert, Gilbert wanted to back out of the whole thing. Uh, and in fact, he sued Sullivan and Doily Cart because he did not feel that bathtubs in every room uh, were acceptable. Likewise, carpets that were so uh, rich and ornate. So the partnership uh, struggled. Gilbert uh, wrote some other plays, went away. Uh, Sullivan uh, wrote a serious opera, Ivanhoe, which was not a disaster, but as you know, Ivanhoe hasn't really made it down to <laughs> the 21st century. And um, uh, he, he, he looked around for other collaborators, as did Gilbert. Gilbert approached uh, Edward Elgar and uh, Jules Massenet, neither of whom agreed to write comic operettas, <laughs> not surprisingly. And uh, finally, Doily Cart was able to bring them back together. And uh, as a matter of concession, Gilbert said, all right, let's write a tragedy. And Sullivan jumped at this. So they wrote a piece called The Yeoman of the Guard. And it has a lot of beautiful music. It's perhaps not as popular as the Mikado or the Pirates of Penzance. Uh, there was another one, which was the, uh, the Gondoliers. And the gondoliers is once again a political spoof in which uh, two gondoliers um, go uh, set up their own country with their own social system and their own laws. Uh, one more almost successful opera called Utopia Limited, and then one last gasp attempt called The Grand Duke, which neither Gilbert nor Sullivan would ever claim in later life. <laughs> So all in all, from Thespis to the Grand Duke, there were 14 of these uh, collaborations, let's say about 10 of which are still done constantly, uh, not just in England, but societies around the world perform these, these works. It's hard to estimate how enormous the influence of Gilbert and Sullivan has been on the world of musical theater. It was the first time that an intelligent book, in other words, the, the dialogue, uh, was married with um, clever words, 
words that uh, addressed issues, uh, music that was very intelligently composed with great craft. And, and this was a standard that these two set over and over with each piece. Now, when we think of uh, music theater in America, Lawrence Hart and George Gershwin and Cole Porter and Rodgers and Hammerstein all said that they owed a huge debt to Gilbert and Sullivan and that these were the, the shoulders that they stood on. This is where that genre of, of musical wa was born, was conceived. But even outside of musicals, uh, humor was carved out by Gilbert with his unfailingly urbane sense of irony. You know, the whole uh, Monty Python style of taking something absurd and treating it as though it's a completely natural occurrence uh, comes right out of Gilbert and Sullivan. Um, you know, what I plan to do, because I can tell every time a tune comes up, many of you are humming and singing along. I, I brought a few scores, and I thought we should simply uh, sing our way through some of the highlights of, of these. Um, you may know that uh, last month, Performance Santa Fe put on a short version of the Pirates of Penzance at the Scottish Rite Center, largely for kids. We, we do this every year. We take an opera and we condense it down to an hour and um, you know, it it's, takes out all the slow music. And it, <laughs> it, it's very family friendly. It's a great way to present somebody to uh, an opera for the first time. So what we found is that everybody loved the Pirates of Penzance. And um, I, I'm going to uh, lead us through some of this right now because uh, I think many of you know these pieces already, and if, if you don't, they'll probably come to you very quickly. So I mentioned that um, the pirates are aristocratic pirates, just uh, by, by nature. And um, they're drinking sherry, and um, they start out this, this piece singing, pour, oh, pour the pirate sherry, fill, oh, fill the pirate glass. Yeah. <laughs> Pour, oh, pour the pirate sherry, fill, oh, fill the pirate glass. I can tell this is not one we know. All right. <laughs> not going to waste your time with that. The pirates have an apprentice named Frederick. It's Frederick's 21st birthday. That's the day on which he gets to decide whether he wants to remain a pirate and, in fact, become a full-fledged pirate or to venture forth into the world. And he has decided, because he is the slave of duty, a good Englishman with a strong moral compass, that he is determined to leave the pirates and lead a blameless, crime-free life. Uh, the pirates are sad to see him go, but being good Englishmen, they say, of course they would never contradict his sense of duty. Now, Frederick, confesses that while he loves all the pirates individually, that as a whole, he is duty-bound to exterminate them from the face of the earth. <laughs> and he says to his sort of adoptive father, the pirate king, would that you could render this extermination unnecessary by accompanying me back to civilization. And the pirate king says, no, Frederick, compared to respectability, our profession is reasonably honest. So, 
there we have Gilbert doing what he does best, saying something in a very sophisticated way. And uh, the pirate king says, no, better far to live and die a pirate king. Now this you do know, so I expect a rousing chorus of pirate king. Oh, better far to live and die Under the brave black flag I fly Than play a sanctimonious part With a pirate head and a pirate heart Away to the cheating world go you Where pirates all are well to do But I'll be true to the song I sing and live and die a pirate king for I am a pirate king and it is, it is a glorious thing to be a pirate king for I am a pirate king you are a rather pirate king and it is, it is a glorious thing to be a pirate king it is a So the pirate king allows Frederick to go, his indentures are over, and Frederick decides that uh, he is going to take Ruth. Now Ruth is that uh, character I describe who has reached the grand old age of 47 and is in the eyes of the British public of 1879, uh, so completely unmarriageable. And uh, Frederick has to somehow shuffle Ruth, Ruth off. Uh, and um, just as he is, is beginning to think maybe his duty demands that he should uh, marry Ruth, he hears the sound of laughing girls. Now, Frederick has been at sea since he was eight years old, so <laughs> Ruth is the only female he has seen. <laughs> and she has convinced him that she is as beautiful as any other woman on earth. Uh, until this bevy of beautiful young maidens appears on the scene, singing Climbing Over Rocky Mountains that was taken from Thespis many years before. Uh, Frederick, of course, has forgotten Ruth completely after about five seconds, and um, these, these lovely girls um, seem like they're all eminently marriageable to him. So he sings to them, uh, isn't there one of you that would uh, put aside uh, moral duty um, in order to save such a one as I. Um, and no, there's not one of them. It looks bad for Frederick until at the last moment one last beautiful maiden appears and that is Mabel and she says, yes, I will do that. And, and she says, poor wandering one, though you've surely strayed. Right? I think you know that. I saw a lot of nodding heads. Poor wandering one, though thou hast surely strayed, take heart of grace, thy steps retrace. Poor wandering one, poor wandering one, if such poor love as mine can help thee find true peace of mind. Why take it, it is thine. Yeah, lovely. Now, 
Uh, one thing that Gilbert and Sullivan enjoyed doing was creating scenes in their humorous operettas that mocked scenes in serious operas uh, that were taking place on the European continent, like operas by Donizetti and Bellini and Rossini. So um, after Mabel has sung Poor Wandering One like that, she decides that uh, she's going to do a little, a little Donizetti for us, and she sings, Ha 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 ha, poor wandering one. Te and she's singing, Take ha 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 ha
and he, Frederick points out that every ship they now capture seems to be manned entirely by orphans. <laughs> so when Major General Stanley appears, he asks the Pirate King, what is this uh, picturesque costume that you're wearing? Uh, I don't recognize it. Are you anything special? And the uh, Pirate King says, yes, we're all single gentlemen. So these single gentlemen want to be married to Major General Stanley's daughters. And um, Major General Stanley says, yes, anything else? And he says, no, nothing else. But one of the daughters says, don't believe them. They are the famous pirates of Penzance. Well, the famous pirates of Penzance are not acceptable sons-in-law to Major General Stanley. Although the pirate king points out that major generals are not acceptable fathers-in-law <laughs> to pirates. But they overlook the point. So. Major General Stanley, remembering what he's heard about the famed Pirates of Penzance, says, I am an orphan boy. And of course, they have to let all of his daughters go. So uh, later in the story, the Pirate King learns that, in fact, Major General Stanley is no orphan. And so he decides to collect a, a force of policemen and march against Major General Stanley. He quickly overtakes the police, and uh, it is looking bad for Major General Stanley and all of his daughters until suddenly Major General Stanley says, I charge you yield in the name of Queen Victoria. And immediately the pirates drop all of their <laughs> weapons. Now, you can imagine that uh, the British public just thought this was the most wonderful thing they had ever seen. <laughs> And Queen Victoria thought it was the most wonderful thing she'd ever seen. There's a couple of songs in here I think that you, you know. Uh, some of the lines from Gilbert and Sullivan have sort of worked their way into world culture. And uh, one of them is, a policeman's lot is not a happy one. <laughs> Let me just do a verse of this. Maybe. When a felon's not engaged in his employment or maturing his felonious little plans. So all Gilbert and Sullivan choruses repeat whatever the singer is singing. All you need to do is repeat. When a felon's not engaged in his employment or maturing his felonious little plans. His capacity for innocent enjoyment is just as great as any honest man's. Our feelings we with difficulty smother when constabulary duties to be done. Ah, take one consideration with another. A policeman's lot is not a happy one. Ah, when constabulary duties to be done, to be done, a policeman's lot is not a happy one. Happy one. Yay! Okay. So to, to test your Gilbert and Sullivan chorus skills, uh, we're going to go to the most famous piece in the Pirates of Penzance. And that is Major General Stanley's song of introduction. Um, 
he, he <laughs> let me go back in history a little bit. Uh, Gilbert, as I mentioned, wanted to be an artillery gunner. And he thought it was amusing that in order to become an artillery gunner, he had to answer questions about Aristophanes and Aeschylus and Sophocles <laughs> and uh, no, no integral and differential calculus. Uh, and the, he really thought that none of these things would come into play when he was shooting somebody. Uh, and for example, um, Joseph Porter, Admiral Joseph Porter, sings a song in HMS Pinafore about uh, stick close to your desks and never go to sea, and you all may be the rulers of the Queen's Navy. Right? <laughs> stick close to your desks and never go to sea, and you all may be the rulers of the Queen's Navy. Oh, we know this one too, I right? <laughs> By pocket borough I was sent by something into Parliament. I always voted at my party's call, and I never thought of thinking for myself at all. I thought so little they rewarded me by making me the ruler of the Queen's Navy. So Gilbert felt that the British system was designed to provide a fantastic cl classical education, but in fact offered no practical advice on how to actually carry out a profession. And the apotheosis of this is Major General Stan. I am the very model of a modern major general. I've information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I know the kings of England and quote the first historical from Marathon to Waterloo in order categorical. I'm very well acquainted too with matters mathematical. I understand equations both the similar and quadratical about binomial theorem. I'm teeming with a lot of news. Lot of news, <laughs> yeah. Oh, with many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse. No, 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 come, 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 come. <laughs> with many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse three times, uh, and then with many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotopotenuse, all right? With many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse, with many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse, with many cheerful facts about the square of the I'm very good at integral and differential calculus. I know the scientific names of beings animalculus. In short, as matters vegetable, animal and mineral, I am the very model of a modern major general. In short, as matters vegetable, animal and mineral, he is the very model of a modern major general. Do we need to rehearse this? <laughs> How many have seen Hamilton in New York? Anybody seen the musical Hamilton? So uh, George Wash, I haven't, but I, I understand George Washington at some point says, I am the very model of a modern major general, right? <laughs> and and Lin-Manuel Miranda, a modern day uh, William S. Gilbert, has, has a better rhyme than mineral even, which is the, the men are all. So um, it's pretty, pretty great. Um, all right, we, we, there's more verses. In fact, when I know what is meant by mamelon and rabelin, when I can tell at sight a mauser rifle from a javelin, when such affairs as sorties and surprises I'm more wary at, and when I know precisely what is meant by commissariat, when I have learned what progress has been made in modern gunnery, when I know more of tactics than a novice in a nunnery, in short, when I have a smattering of elemental strategy. You have to find a rhyme for strategy. 
Well, of course, how obvious, strategy. You'll say a better major general has never strategy. You'll say a better major general has never strategy. You'll say a better major general has never strategy. You'll say a better major general has never sat a strategy. For my military knowledge, though I'm plucky and adventurous, has only been brought down to the beginning of the century. But still, in matters vegetable, animal, and mineral, I am the very model of a modern major general. That's all of you. We'll go slowly. But still in matters vegetable, animal and mineral, I am the very model of a modern major general. But still in matters vegetable, animal and mineral, I am the very model of a modern major general. Now, traditionally in Gilbert and Sullivan productions, when something very fast has been sung, the audience applauds and then the singer does it even faster and then the chorus does it even faster. Are you ready for this challenge? <laughs> We'll do the abridged version. <laughs> For my military knowledge, though I'm plucky and adventurous, has only been brought down to the beginning of the century. But still, in matters vegetable, animal, and mineral, I am the very model of a modern major general. <laughs> After that athletic endeavor, let's take a break refresh ourselves and come back uh, in about 15 minutes. A couple of things um, came up in our break, as they always do. Somebody said, why are those fast songs called patter songs? Now, nobody knows that this is true, but the best theory is that the paternoster, when muttered very quickly by a priest, is unintelligible, <laughs> but that supposedly is the origin of the English phrase, the patter song, okay? The other thing I wanted to say is that by the end of Gilbert and Sullivan's life, well, Gilbert died in 1900. He had bad health all of his life, kidney and bladder and, uh, Sul uh, sorry, Sullivan, Sullivan died in 1800. Gilbert was a much more healthy fellow and um, had his own lawn tennis court that he had constructed longer than a normal court so he could hit the ball harder and still have it be inbounds. And, and he died tragically. There were two sisters swimming in his large pond. He, he and his wife, Kitty, uh, had lived there for many, many years. And uh, they had not just cats and dogs, but deer and badger. And they had a whole menagerie living with them. And uh, this young woman screamed from the pond that she was drowning. And um, Gilbert jumped in to save her. And he drowned. He had a heart attack and drowned. But, but she was fine. Uh, so, in any case, after their deaths, uh, it seemed like Gilbert and Sullivan were going to fall out of fashion. But in 1919, Doily Cart's son, Rupert, revived the whole Doily Cart company, uh, which then went strong until 1982 or so and then revived again until about 2003. So there are literally hundreds of companies that, that do uh, Gilbert and Sullivan. And uh, we found in our experience here in Santa Fe doing the um, Pirates of Penzance that the public, although they've loved this short opera that we do every year, was more positively disposed to Gilbert and Sullivan than anything else. And it seemed to be uh, from two-year-old kids to everybody that brought them. You know, uh, adults and children alike really loved these. So um, we, we have entertained the idea of perhaps doing that again uh, next January. 
and I thought I would um, hunt around Santa Fe for a test audience, and I think I just <laughs> found one. So what we're going to do now uh, is sing our way through the entire The Mikado. Um, <laughs> the Mikado is, after all, the most famous and, and well-loved of all of them, and um, we'll, we'll, we'll just blip over all the parts that, that aren't so familiar. But I think um, I've sort of figured out that uh, some of you have had experience singing Gilbert and Sullivan since seventh grade, and uh, there's, there's a lot of know-how in this room. So, all right, so as I mentioned, the Mikado is set in Japan, which is a thinly veiled England. I told you that at the beginning of every Gilbert and Sullivan piece, um, there is a chorus that sort of sets the tone. And in this, it's, uh, if you want to know who we are, we are gentlemen of Japan in this sort of uh, pentatonic-y, Japanese-y sounding. If you want to know who we are, we are gentlemen of Japan. On many a vase and jar, on many a screen and fan. So these Japanese gentlemen in their beautiful kimonos uh, welcome a stranger who introduces himself and says he is looking for a fair maiden named Yum Yum. <laughs> right, so this is, this is subtitled, this is uh, the Mikado or the town of Titipu. That is, Gilbert and Sullivan um, were so superstitious I don't know why I'm suddenly, I got you 10 seconds into the opera and we're now having a digression. <laughs> Gilbert and Sullivan were very superstitious and after the success of HMS Pinafore and the Pirates of Penzance and Patience um, and uh, Princess Ida, they wanted all of their operas to begin with P because they thought <laughs> that was partly responsible for their success. So Iolanthe was originally called the Peer and the Perry. <laughs> But, but they changed it to Iolanthe. And, and by the success of a few non-P operas, they realized the Mikado was okay. All right, so these gentlemen meet, yum, uh, meet uh, uh, this, this wandering minstrel. And the wandering minstrel introduces himself like this. A wandering minstrel, I, a thing of shreds and patches of ballad songs and snatches and dreamy lullaby. My catalog is long through every passion ranging and to your humors changing I tune my supple song. I tune my supple song. And then he sings different kinds of songs, a patriotic song and a sea shanty. But then he goes back to a wandering minstrel eye. And um, they wonder, what is his business with the beautiful Yum Yum? And he says he's fallen in love with her. And they explain that is not a good idea because in the town of Titipu, flirting is uh, an offense punishable by death. 
Our great Mikado, virtuous man, when he to rule this land began, resolved to try a plan whereby young men might best be steadied. I don't think this is a familiar one. Uh, <laughs> but he explains, he explains that anybody who flirts or leers or winked, unless they're married, shall be beheaded right away. Now, the plot is just beginning. <laughs> Furthermore, he says, Yum Yum is engaged to marry Coco. And uh, Coco is a name well known to our young minstrel, Nanki Poo. Uh, Coco is a tailor. And he says, what, Coco is just a tailor? He, no, no, Coco has been promoted to the exalted rank of Lord High Executioner. All right. <laughs> so there's a character named Poobah, a word which has come into our language, right? But didn't exist before uh, Gilbert created this character, Poobah, who is Lord High just about everything. He, he fulfills all of the functions in the town of Titipoo except for being uh, the Lord High Executioner, which is filled by Coco. And uh, Coco. Um, makes a grand entrance, he explains that uh, he'd been put in jail for flirting, uh, but was released. Taken from a county jail by a set of curious chances, liberated then on bail, on my own recognizances, wafted by a favoring gale, as one sometimes is in trances to a height that few can scale save by long and weary dances surely never had a male under such like circumstances so adventurous a tale which may rank with most romances Ta now you're going to repeat everything i say okay taken from a county jail by a set of curious chances Surely never had a male so adventurous a tale. And Coco says, if I ever am actually called upon to act as Lord High Executioner, which I have never been because I've never cut off anybody's head in my life, I have a long list of people who are very deserving. <laughs> As someday it may happen that a victim must be found. I've got a little list, I've got a little list of society offenders who might well be underground and who never would be missed. They never would be missed. There's the pestilential nuisances who write for autographs, all people who have flabby hands and irritating laughs, all children who are up in dates and floor you with them flat, all pure persons who in shaking hands shake hands with you like that. And all third persons who on spoiling tete-a-tetes insist they'd none of them be missed, they'd none of them be missed. Everybody, he's got him on the list, he's got him on the list, and they'd none of them be missed, they'd none of them be missed. So he sings about, there are so many people deserving of decapitation, it will never be a problem. All right, at this point, in come all of the beautiful young schoolgirls, and immediately Sullivan's music lets us know. 
So the girls come skipping in, and uh, they sing about their youth and their innocence, and uh, three of them step out and sing a song which you all know. Three little mates from school are we, pert as a schoolgirl well can be, filled to the brim with girlish glee. Three little mates from school, everything deserves alpha. So these three maids are Yum Yum and her two friends Peep Bo and Pity Sing. Peep Bo and Pity Sing have a little encounter with Pooh Bah, who is much more serious than they are. And Coco runs into Nanky Poo, who explains to Coco that he is in love with the young girl that Coco is about to marry. Coco acts very understanding, and he says, I completely uh, sympathize with you. I love the little thing myself. <laughs> and so, uh, once again, British manners prevail over reality, and uh, Coco and Nanky Poo are our friends. Now, uh, it emerges that um, Coco leaves Nanky Poo alone with Yum Yum, and Yum Yum confesses to Nanky Poo that she, in fact, does not love Coco, but loves him. And uh, he says, but what, what if I should tell you I'm not just a wandering minstrel, but the son of the Mikado, the great ruler of Japan? Well, he is. He's run away because the Mikado wants him to marry Katisha, and Katisha, like Ruth in the Pirates of Penzance, is 47 years old and <laughs> totally off, off the marriage chart. Okay. So now we have a real plot going here. Yeah. And Nanky Poo says, if you weren't married to Coco, I would kiss you like this and we would hug like this. But of course we can't do that. So, uh, now a difficulty emerges. The Mikado realizes that there has not been an execution in the town of Titipu for the requisite amount of time, and that if a beheading does not take place, that the Lord High Executioner himself will have to be beheaded. So Coco turns to Pooba, who's Lord High everything else, and says, I appoint you Lord High Substitute. You can die in my place. <laughs> Poobah declines this <laughs> honor. And I remember in the Pirates of Penzance when there was a love duet and a song about the weather at the same time. Well, in this, uh, Sullivan actually takes not two, but three tunes and introduces them um, separately and then surprises us that they can all fit together. Um, this is Puba. I am so proud, if I allowed my family pride to be my guide. Come on. I'd volunteer to quit this sphere instead of you in a minute or two. But family pride must be denied and set 
kicked aside and mortified and mortified. And Coco sings, my brain it teems with endless schemes, both good and new for Titty Poo, for Titty Poo. But if I flit the benefit that I diffuse, the town would lose. Now every man to aid his clan must brawl and plan as best he can. And Pish Tush. I heard one day a gentleman say that criminals who are cut in two can hardly feel the fatal steel and so are slain or slain without much pain. If this is true, it's jolly for you. Your courage screw to bid us adieu. I am so proud my brain it teems. I need three voices going on. So if you imagine all three of those parts happening at once, they fit together beautifully, and then at the end, I bet you've heard the expression, a short, sharp shock. This is where it comes from. Two, this is what will happen to them, sorry. <laughs> this is what will happen to them if they do not come up with somebody to be beheaded. They imagine themselves in prison forever. Two, and then having their heads cut off. Sit in solemn silence in a dull dock dock in a pestilential prison with a lifelong lock, awaiting the sensation of a short, sharp shock from a cheap and chippy chopper on a big black block. To sit in solemn silence in a dull dock dock in a pestilential prison with a lifelong lock, awaiting the sensation of a short, sharp shock from a cheap and chippy chopper on a big black block. A dull dock dock, a lifelong lock, a short, sharp shock, a big black block. To sit in solemn silence in a pestilential prison and awaiting the sensation of a cheap and chippy chopper on a big a black, a black. Now they have a real problem on their hands. Coco is not eager to be decapitated, but he decides that perhaps the one substitute he hasn't considered is Nanki Poo himself. And Nanki Poo and Coco come to an agreement. Nanki Poo may marry Yum Yum for a month, and at the end of that month, he will be decapitated and Coco will take over marrying Yum Yum. At first, Coco resists this plan, but he realizes that it will save his own life and that Nanki Poo, in order just to have one measly month with Yum Yum, is willing to sacrifice his life at the end of it. So, Nanki Poo has agreed to this and the, the whole chorus comes in. We won't do all of that. All right. Coco says, um, I have found a volunteer. Tis Nanki Poo, I think he'll do. He yields his life if yum yum I'll surrender. Now I adore that girl with passion tender and could not yield her with a ready will if I did not adore myself with passion tenderer still. <laughs> so then everybody sings how happy they are of this, this arrangement. The threatened cloud has passed away and brightly dawns our wedding day. What that the night may come too soon, there's yet a month of afternoon. All right. So this joyous chorus is interrupted by the Mikado's daughter-in-law elect, Katisha. And she decides that she is going to cause Nanki Poo uh, to be unable to marry because she's going to announce to the whole village that, it, that he is in fact the Mikado's son. 
But every time she goes to say this to the assembled crowd, they interrupt her. And so in fury, uh, she runs away, and uh, it looks like things are going to work out until Act Two begins. <laughs> so uh, all of the girls are braiding Yum Yum's hair, and uh, they learn the unfortunate news that if a young woman uh, has a husband who is executed, then under Japanese law, she has to be buried alive. <laughs> Suddenly, Yum Yum is less certain of her love for Nanki Poo. <laughs> so they sing a little madrigal together. Brightly dawns our wedding day, joyous hour we give thee greeting. Whither, whither art thou fleeting? Fickle moment, prithee stay. Fickle moment, prithee stay. Always, Sullivan finds well-known English musical forms or well-known operatic forms, and he turns them into something crazy because we're singing this fa-la-la madrigal uh, about um, how lovely the moment is before Yum Yum has to be buried alive and before Nanki Poo has to be executed. Now, there is one authentic Japanese tune that Arthur Sullivan picked here. Miyasama, Miyasama, Onema no Mayeni, Hira Pira Sura no Wanangani, Tokotonyare, Tonyare na. The Mikado makes his entrance. From every kind of man, obedience I expect. I'm the emperor of Japan, and guess who's with him? Katisha. And I'm his daughter-in-law elect. He'll marry his son, he's only got one, to his daughter-in-law elect. My morals have been declared particularly correct, she says, but they're nothing at all compared with those of his daughter-in-law elect. Bow, bow to his daughter-in-law elect. The chorus, bow, bow to his daughter-in-law elect. And the Mikado explains his philosophy of ruling Japan. A more humane Mikado never did in Japan exist. To nobody second, I'm certainly reckoned a true philanthropist. It is my very humane endeavor to make to some extent each evil liver a running river of harmless merriment. My object all sublime I shall achieve in time to let the punishment fit the crime, the punishment fit the crime, and make each prisoner pent unwillingly represent 
a source of innocent merriment, of innocent merriment. The prosy, dull society sinners who chatter and bleat and bore are sent to hear sermons from mystical Germans who preach from ten till four. The amateur singer attends a series of masses and fugues and ups by Bach interwoven with Spohr and Beethoven at classical Mahande pops. The billiard sharp whom anyone catches his doom's extremely hard. He's made to dwell in a dungeon cell in a spot that's always barred. And there he plays extravagant matches in fitless finger stalls on a cloth untrue with a twisted cue and elliptical billiard balls. My object all sublime I shall achieve in time to let the punishment fit the crime, the punishment fit the crime, and make each prisoner pent unwillingly represent a source of innocent merriment, of innocent merriment. And then we can all do it. His object all sublime, he will achieve in time to let the punishment fit the crime, the punishment fit the crime, and make each prisoner pent unwillingly represent a source of innocent merriment, of innocent merriment. Yeah. Now, in order to appease the Mikado, Poobah, Nanki Poo, and Yum Yum uh, decide that they're going to pretend that an execution has occurred because they realize that killing the son of the Mikado would mean certain death for everybody. <laughs> so they create a story, and uh, the Mikado says, um, I, I can't remember the punishment for that in Japan, but I, I think it's slow boiling in oil. <laughs> so this is really quite a, a bloodthirsty little piece, you know. Um, and uh, somehow, at the last moment, Nanki Poo appears, and um, the only thing that would save Nanki Poo is if Katisha were no longer interested in marrying him. So Coco has to take it upon himself to convince Katisha that he, he, Coco, the Lord High Executioner, is so in love with her that she will lose all interest in Nanki Poo. Now that's a tall order, <laughs> but he is successful, and he does it by singing a song, a tender sentimental ballad that you all know, so please sing this with me. On a tree by a river, a little tom tit sang willow, tit willow, tit willow. And I said to him, Dickie Bird, why do you sit singing willow, tit willow, tit willow? Is it weakness of intellect, birdie, I cried, or a rather tough worm in your little inside? With a shake of his poor little head, he replied, Oh, willow, tit willow, tit willow. 
Katisha is so moved by the plight of the poor little bird that she agrees to marry Coco. And they sing a song about how well suited they are because Katisha is a bloodthirsty creature and Coco is as harmless as a fly. But uh, she says, there is beauty in the bellow of the blast, isn't there? There is beauty in the bellow of the blast. There is grandeur in the growling of the gale. There is eloquent outpouring when the lion is a-roaring and the tiger is a-lashing of his tail. Poor Coco, yes, I like to see a tiger from the Congo or the Niger, and especially when lashing of his tail. So they sing their eternal love. And once Katisha has agreed to marry Coco, Nanki Poo reappears. And uh, the Mikado immediately embraces him as his son. And um, somehow, everything is forgiven because Katisha was so convinced by that song, Titwillow, that uh, she lets Nanki Poo go. And everybody says that uh, Nanki Poo has gone to marry Yum Yum. For he's gone and married Yum Yum, Yum Yum. Your anger, pray bury, for all will be merry. I think you had better succumb and join our expressions of glee. On the subject, I pray you be dumb. Your anger, the many, are not worth a penny. The word for your guidance is mum. You have a very good bargain in me. On the subject, we pray you be dumb, dumb, dumb. good fish in the sea. There are lots of good fish in the sea. So they all come together at the end and reprise the chorus that they sang at the end of Act One. With joy a shout, with joy a shout, and ringing cheer, inaugurate, inaugurate every career. With joyous shout and ringing cheer, with joyous, joyous shout. Now the question is, just, just an informal poll, would this be something that you all would be interested in having us do as our family opera in January of 2017? <laughs> that's a yes, that's a rouse, okay, we're doing it. All right, then, then uh, if, if you wait about 11 months, uh, <laughs> Learn all the little parts you don't know between now and then, and uh, we, can, we can have a very rousing Mikado. In, in yes? There was a wonderful movie about 22 years ago. Yeah. Mitch Lee. So why don't you forget it? It's about the making of the Mikado. Topsy Turvy. Yeah. You get the movie Topsy-Turvy, it's wonderful, thank you. And I, I think you can also get the Linda Ronstadt uh, Pirates of Penzance, if that interests you, from about 30, 30 and a bit years ago. You know, the, the uh, recurrence of these Gilbert and Sullivan pieces in, in our culture just shows how beloved they are, you know, the phrases and the, the, the shows themselves. So, are there questions? Can I... Tell anybody anything about it. 
Gilbert and Sullivan. Yes, sir. Can you really explain the worldwide popularity of Gilbert and Sullivan since their subject matter was British? So British. Yes. Well, the ones that are more uh, specific to Britain are perhaps the ones that are less uh, popular worldwide. And I think that the um, elements that are in the most popular ones really reach every culture because uh, class structure is not unique to Britain, after all, and uh, nor, nor hypocrisy, nor morality. And um, the, the gentle hand with which Gilbert addresses every issue uh, and, and punctures it, and, and yet uh, leaves everybody uh, with dignity intact at the end, I think is part of the enduring charm. And they all have this marvelous uh, music by Arthur Sullivan. You know, I, I looked into what were the other big hits at the time when, when Pinafore was running 500 shows and the Mikado was running 800 shows. And it was the Chimes of Normandy and Dorothy and the Chinese Honeymoon. These are operettas by other people. Uh, and um, the, the plots are pretty thin and the lyrics are pretty unsophisticated. The music is uh, sort of music hall music. So, the first time around, the novelty of the Chinese honeymoon or the Chimes of Normandy, uh, which was a British version of a French piece called Les Cloches de Conneville, the first time around, these were interesting, but they didn't have the interest to be repeated again and again. And I guess if, if we're talking about pop music, uh, a great piece of pop music endures, I don't know, a, a decade or maybe 50 years, but um, a, a piece of, of music that can be heard repeatedly and still have something in it, uh, that's magic, you know, and somehow Gilbert and Sullivan together could create that magic. That's the best explanation I can offer about why we still live in a world where people do these pieces, you know, uh, there, there's Gilbert and Sullivan societies in Asia and in South America, it's not just uh, the English-speaking world. It's a fascinating phenomenon, really. Yes, sir. Do you have any idea whether Gilbert wrote the words first or Sullivan wrote the music first? Gilbert, always wrote the words first, and Sullivan would never set to work unless he approved. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, th there were a whole operettas that were never written. There was one that Gilbert tried to write about a magic lozenge that would... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Sullivan, Sullivan had had it already in The Sorcerer with, with the magic that made somebody fall in love with the first person they saw. So the magic lozenge plot never took off. <laughs> and, but, but Sullivan did say that Gilbert, once he had a good subject, could write things that were more eminently singable than any other poet. Uh, but the, the words always came first, and if Sullivan needed it to be different, Gilbert would change that, and then Sullivan could set it. But Gilbert himself was quite, quite musical, and um, he was able to uh, write words with enough variation that they would give melodic shape uh, so that not all the melodies were foursquare. Uh, isn't that interesting? Um, I just wrote an opera for the Santa Fe Opera, and, and a lot of the Santa Fe Opera people said to me, so which happened first? Uh, did Andrea Fellows Walters write the words first, or did you write the music first? And, and I said, no, I, she wrote the words first. And in fact, every 
composer-librettist team works that way. The, the words give the composer, uh, first of all, the rhythms and the emotions um, and, and how long the phrases are. So words, words come first. The only example I can think of where the words did not come first is that supposedly Gershwin wrote, ba-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> and then Ira, uh, Du Bois Hayward wrote the rest of the libretto for Porgy and Bess. But um, Gershwin's brother Ira figured out words that fit that tune. And that's really the only case I know of um, music before words. Yeah. All right, any other questions about Gilbert and Sullivan? Good night, everybody. Thank you so much. <laughs>